This is the third wheel. There are neither main hosts nor co-hosts on the third wheel. But I am a host. I'm Tyler. And I'm joined by my partner, Bion. Hello. And my friend, Jesse. Yes, that's me. My name's Jesse. Me from a past turning of the cycle. And one yet to come. Is that um, how we're describing our level of experience with these books? Oh, wow. That's really great. We should have thought about that before we started recording. So we thought that we would do this sort of intro just as like a little, hey, what's our experience level with the Wheel of Time before we get started with like the actual recording. I know that for me, I I have the most experience, um, but in some ways... It doesn't really help. Uh, I read the series when I was much younger. Um, I think I probably read the first one when I was eight or nine, and I don't think I finished until I was, gosh, 17. Were you reading 18. as the books were coming out? So I was um, until I caught up. At, I think when I started, it was like book uh, seven or eight was out. Uh, my father handed me the first one. He was like, Tyler, I've been reading these books and I I can't talk to my wife about it. I need you to read them. <laughs> Which should say a lot since he asked, like, you have to read these thousand page books for me. Um, so I, I just, I started reading and I caught up, I think during book 11, like book 11 had just come out and I, I don't know. I mean, after the like book seven slash eight through 10 and then opening book 11 and seeing, wow, how many pages is this prologue? Three digits, you say? Sounds like a great time to take a break. Um, and so I didn't read any more until they were all out. Um, but at that point, I mean, I raced through them. Um, but it's been, gosh, that would have been like seven, maybe eight years ago now. So at this point, my knowledge is like TV tropes level, uh, but I've been rereading them and I don't know, there's just a lot of nostalgia and a lot of stuff that I'm picking up on that just, it wows me like how much Jordan clearly knew ahead of time, but also how much he just had no idea where he was going with it. And that's the sort of sentiment that wanted you to ask us about doing the podcast, right? Yeah, I'm interested to hear your thoughts as they like evolve throughout the story, because there's a lot of stuff where, you know, a character name will pop up and I'm thinking not like, oh, wow, that's interesting. That this is happening. I'm thinking like, OK, well, this character isn't in any danger because they show up in this book and, you know, I know exactly what their arc is and what's going to happen and how they play into this, that and the other event. So I'll be interested to hear the first-timers' thoughts, some more first-timer than others. Um, let's keep going in order and go with Beyond next. I'm the the most beginner of us all. I've spent 90 minutes reading the prologue in the first 10 chapters and taking notes on it. I think the hardest part for me is just going to be just reading 10 chapters at a time and also making sure I take thorough notes. That took you 90 I, minutes? Is, is, is that incredulation for how fast or how, how slow? How fast? Remember? That was me reading slowly. Yeah, I told you Bion, like, can't be allowed to read at their own pace. 
Yeah. And that was going slow because I was trying to make sure I was reading every single one of the extremely adjective sentences and um, taking notes on all the things and finding quotes. Big adjectives for big boys. Yeah. So basically I went at reading. Um, But yeah, so super beginner and giving my own twist on the story because uh, Tyler's been carrying around the books forever and they just looked old to me and not in the old that made me want to read them. But I figured I'd give them a try. So here's like are. old, terrible covers. Yes, they're so bad. Now wait, because <laughs> you've seen the covers on the Kindle version, and those are the good versions of the cover. Have you seen the bad versions of the cover? Yes, because okay. you used to keep them in your rooms. Oh, so that's true. Your, 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 your stack of nerdery. Oh man, it, it kind of really it, it fit in with the dragons and the weird pointy knives. Dragons are cool. Dragons <laughs> are cool, but the way you had them was not cool. What's important here is that some of those covers are pretty good, and some of them are also there. Have (laughs) aged poorly. Some of them are big spoils. Uh, Jesse, where are you at? So, I am about in the middle between Beyond and Tyler, although I have only about finished the third book, Dragon Reborn. So I have more perspective. Good call out. Knowing the yeah. names of the books really just, shows you know, that you... Showing my cred, knowing the title of a just book. Just flexing. So yes. I have slightly more perspective coming in than Beyond, but nowhere near as much as Tyler. And I think that having three different levels of context on this book is really important. Because going back through these first segments... I realized how much that even the small amount that I knew completely changed the way that I was reading it. So I think it's really cool that we're going to be able to talk about this from like three different levels. Yeah, and I think for me, it'll be really useful um, hearing your thoughts because I went back and read New Spring. And so I will know information about the book that we are in and like the total arc of the series. Um, But if there's information, um, you know, like a plot thread starts in book five and ends in seven, uh, you know, that might not be information that I have uh, as of yet, at least. Um, And I know that as the series goes on, it becomes much more that kind of thing where there's like long, long running threads throughout multiple books, as opposed to the the first book certainly is like very self-contained. So I'm going to continue at my pace on my read, because I think I can pretty easily stay ahead of the pace we're setting for the podcast, but if Bion were to read at their own pace, uh, they would probably lap me twice. Yeah, that's why I'm only reading 10 chapters or however many chapters we're discussing per podcast, because otherwise that'd just be too much information. But yeah, that that's kind of where I'm at, because uh, having a strict reading schedule... Uh, keeps my stress levels down and keeps this flowing smoothly yeah, and that good. ensures that everything in fact is the freshest take to just you know yeah i think that's really important speaking of which what are we doing today tyler we are going into book one the eye of the world i know all of the names by heart i just i promise i'm not a hashtag <laughs> fake fan nerd listen i'm not that much of a nerd So are we ready to jump into it? Uh, I think I am. I have some notes in front of me. 
I have a copy of all of your notes in front of me because I am a DM at heart. And so no I, can't allow, I can't allow you to have any secrets. Yeah, I'm going to fudge the die rolls. Did you look at mine too, or did you just... I, yeah. I mean, I didn't, like, write them down, but okay, I read them cool. all. So, the prologue, Dragon Mount. The story begins on a... In the ruins of a sprawling palace um, in the midst of being destroyed. Scorch marks cover the walls. The floor has turned to liquid and swallowed people. Um, There are just broken bodies laying all across the ground. And there's just a guy walking around um, calling out for a woman named Ilyena. And he is... Doesn't seem bothered by the destruction, doesn't seem bothered by the earthquakes that are tearing the area apart. The only thing that he seems to care about is finding his wife. But it's not, the tone of it isn't, oh, these earthquakes won't stop me. It's very much like, there are no earthquakes. Like, what are you talking about? It's a perfectly normal day. I just want to find my wife, Ilyana. Completely unaware. Completely unaware. Yeah, so within the first paragraph of the prologue, I my initial response was, wow, just some death and destruction. What a bold move. And then as it continued, I found it interesting how much description was invested into a cloak or the floor and everything. <laughs> and I was like, I mean, if, if you want a detail oh, about you'll this understand. cloak, that's, that's great, I guess. I'll, I'll up my uh, cloak lore or something. But uh, it was it was just a really interesting dichotomy of, what was clearly happening and the bodies and the gruesome nature. And then this guy wandering through being like, Hey wife, where are you? Wife. Yeah. yeah I thought the uh, madman writing was actually really good. Yeah. Yeah. He definitely comes across as just like completely disconnected from reality. Um, so I have a, you mentioned not being sure of cloaks. How do you feel about like bro- uh, bodice embroidery? Do you like reading about that? Your opinion will develop. Your opinion, you will learn a lot about bodice embroidery. I mean, bodices take a lot of work and the artistry, and if we are basing this off of, like, vaguely Eurocentric fantasy, which it likely is, considering the context cues later in the books, it's there's going to be all about the bodice and the titty covers. I wasn't expecting a real answer. (laughs) I have thoughts about fashion. Well, you'll get to express them. Well, you know, since there's so many paragraphs spent dedicating to, like, the shade and the texture of all the fabric, I think I'll be fine. Yes. We'll have plenty of opportunities to talk. Yes. Uh, Moving on. The man is named Luz Theron Telemon, who I refuse to call him anything shorter than that. It has to be all three. He is... Not even just Luz Theron? No. I mean, if someone else, if someone else calls him Luz Theron, in like a quote, that's fine. But like, he is LTT Luz Theron Telemann. All right. So what's Luz Theron Telemann going through? Uh, he is. The writing is like constantly reinforcing that as he's searching um, around for his wife, that he's walking over and around this like it keeps mentioning this one body that is like a golden-haired woman and then a man just appears 
from the air, just like a shimmer exists, and then he suddenly is present. Um, He's decked out in all black, and they start to have a conversation where it's clear that the guy that showed up, um, whose name is Elan, um, is he's called the Betrayer of Hope. Um, he makes it very clear that Luz Theron Telamon is like totally. It's made explicit to us that he is just disconnected from reality, and that it's not just like, you know, he's fine with the destruction around him. He's just like straight up not processing that it's there. He names Luz Theron Telamon the dragon, or like in canon in the story, like Luz Theron Telamon is the dragon. He's not. It's not a name that has just been come up with. But bad it's time for dragons. Bad time for dragons. Um, but it's good to know for us. Like, hey, be explicit. This guy is the one that we're going to be talking about for the rest of the series. Yeah, and Ellen Morin sort of like flexes on Luz Theron Theron Telemann's behalf. He, like, lists off all his accomplishments and is like, it's pretty sad that you don't remember any of this. Yeah, he's now just, like, a broken man. Like, the only thing that Elan cares about is proving how cool he is. And so, I mean, that's sort of the tone that I got. a Sasuke. He is Sasuke. (laughs) Um, His backstory is sadder than anybody else's. (laughs) um yeah the way that i kind of interpreted it all is like he's building loose there and telemon up as like here's all the cool stuff that you've done just to prove how strong he is when he beats uh loose there so classic villain stuff classic villain stuff the amount of uh proper nouns really interested me from betrayer and dragon and all sorts of language like that the comparisons between past versus present and being in reality versus not at all. And so I, I read the prologue through twice because I was instructed to, and you know, I just <laughs> love following instructions, but I actually didn't. It helped because um, I definitely skimmed through a lot of the descriptions of what uh, anime protagonist man did. And um, I, I'm not pronouncing LTT out the whole time. But it just, it was really building his character up, which made it stand out even more like what is currently around him, the runes, and how little he is connected to everything that's happening right now. I think a question I think is worth asking, Bjorn, is what's your like general feeling on lore? It seems like there's a lot of it. It seems really Eurocentric. No, I don't mean for this series. I mean like in general. Oh, in, do in you general? like lore? I do like lore. I like character development and world building more than I actually like plot typically, because that's what fascinates me. Like, what are the intricacies? How does this world work? What are the laws? What is the religion? What is the culture? Oh, you're going to like this series. (laughs) I mean, if if he spent that long just describing a tattooed cloak, I I think he's going to go in more about Yeah, the level of detail is absurd. I have like notes about that. Right now, I find the level of detail boring, but I think if and when I get more invested in the series, I'll actually enjoy the way that he keeps talking. Well, he's only talking about boring stuff right now. It is very boring. Yeah, the story definitely has a turns from this like hyper low fantasy. You're like in a village 
to the maximum level of fantasy of like you know let's not spoil let's not spoil but there yeah the world building definitely comes forward right now there's not much world to build at least where the characters are in this section so the one thing that i will say because so what happens is elan uh, calls upon the power of his dark master, Shaitan, <laughs> to heal Luce Theron Telamon's mind, like, temporarily, um, which apparently causes great pain, um, which makes sense because of how that works later. Um, and then Luce Theron, like, realizes what's going on around him. And just, like, completely, I mean, he was already crazy, but he, like, absolutely, completely just loses it. It describes him just, like, screaming continuously. Because the mind will protect itself from trauma, so to have it suddenly released like that, even in, like, a fantasy novel, humans can't take that. No matter how great or strong he was, it's just a ridiculous amount to take, and so, I don't know, it it, it made sense to me, because the way it was building up, I was like, well, duh. But um, the the amount of light versus dark already from the beginning, like the dark, powerful one, the one power, I was just like, wow, light and darkness. I'm sure <laughs> we'll see lots of this. Yeah, do you get it? Did I get it? Did I get it? There's light and darkness. I mean, there's definitely going to be more detail about the exact kind of madness that LTT is experiencing here mm-hmm. that, like, I'm, like, realizing, like, I can't imagine reading this without context, like, right now. Because, fun fact, I missed the prologue the first time I read this book. Yeah, so. <laughs> I remember freaking out as soon as you said that. I was like, are you joking? The prologue yeah. is, like, the most important part. So, I've never read this prologue without context. And because oh. Because with, with the difference between the prologue and the um, first chapter, it's a real big tone change it seems as well mm-hmm. like yeah. the, the expectations that the prologue build up and then you switch to the first chapter and you're like really this this is what i'm reading and so it it gives me hope for actively invested reading rather than just reading to to find the the trends and various other things i can note of but actually, i mean i like, think that's what the... is the story yeah i mean i think that's the narrative function of the prologue is to let you know the scale that things can get to and what kind of things you can expect if you like stick with it because he knows that's a little hard to stick with at the beginning yeah like if you think about it as like okay so the prologue is the characters at their maximum strength and they're like teleporting around and creating mountains and turning rivers by their summoning power making lightning bolts tunnel into the core of the earth and then the rest of the earth reshapes around the whole if i was understanding correctly yeah that's like the ceiling and so the speaking of that high level of power i i don't remember the exact nature of how the i'm gonna say two words together that are not a spoiler hopefully how the true power works it seemed like I don't know if Jordan wrote it specifically to not show how it should all be coming together. Because, like, Luce Theron, if we're reading from his perspective, 
he should be able to see what is happening with um, Elan, with like his channeling. Okay, I think we're getting a little in the weeds. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So then the last thing that I will say about the prologue before we finish out the description is that speaking of like needing to go back to it, I think the last thing that is relevant like from the prologue out to the story doesn't happen until like the end of the 12th book. <laughs> like it still carries forward up to that point. It might even be farther. That's just the last one that I remember that's explicitly like this thing matters to this other thing. So how um, does the prologue end, Tyler? It ends by Luz Theron Telamon travels, capital T travels, uh, to a river elsewhere. It doesn't say where, although we know where. And he draws... Yeah. <laughs> Some I of us do. do. Not know. Um, he draws the one power into himself until he is consumed and becomes like a beam of pure energy that bores huh, into the earth. <laughs> That's <laughs> awful. It's not that funny. It's pretty funny. It's funny because no. some of this book is boring. <laughs> no. Yeah. Okay. Shut up. You're wrong. I'll accept that. He like transforms the landscape. The river is turned. An island is created in the river. A volcano is made. I'm going to skip ahead just a second. Something that they describe in the first chapter um, about the sand hills and how they used to be the shore of an ocean. Uh, I looked at the map and assuming that these are all like the same event happening, that means that like a fifth of the wetlands was created by this one event because like... Yeah, just looking at the map, like, if the ocean was there, there's a whole lot of land. And so it must have all just been, I think calling it the breaking is not far off. That's really helpful, because I actually really like looking at the maps, because I think maps give, give a lot of context. But that's a lot of land to suddenly be like, ta-da, let there be land. Let there be land. Yeah, something's raised, something's lowered. I mean, there must be, there's a mountain range later that um, I don't remember if it's named on the map, so I won't name it, but I have to imagine that, that mountain range was raised by the breaking. So, the very last thing that happens, Elan appears, I assume he travels uh, to the same place, and he sees the volcano that the dragon has created, and he promises Luzther and Telamon that there is, like, a continuous eternal battle through the turnings of the wheel, for 10,000 years, they will continue to fight until Elan can be victorious. So, yeah, the prologue has, like, a lot going on, and a lot of it doesn't make sense without yeah. any context. And I think that's why we've spent a little while on it. Yeah, I thought about... I had to think when I was making the notes about, like, who? how do I refer to this character? Because, like, I know what this character should be called. But I also know that that's not what the book is calling them yet. And it was like, is this obvious enough to the reader on first read through? Like, should I? I don't know. I There's mean, a lot of stuff. The first time reader. I mean, it felt like there was piles of foreshadowing, and I'm sure there's lots of elements. Like, there's a lot of descriptions of circles, which ties into the wheel, 
and whatnot. Um, so I'm sure the moment I read further, I'll just be like, oh, yes, that, I read that. But uh, right now it's more just like, it's it's building it up to be really, really cool. So hopefully it actually follows Hopefully we get that. there. Ho- hopefully that happens. Just give it like four books. Four whole books is a lot of time. For me, as someone who's only in near the end of the third book, oh my god, it gets so much better. Even though I know that, like, people say that, like, some of the best stuff is, like, fourth, fifth, sixth book, the leap in quality from the first to second book is immense. Yeah. Yeah. First to second book is really big. And I think I remember, like, the third book also being really, really good. So, yeah. That was the prologue. That was the prologue. Glad we got through it. Um, So, chapter one, An Empty Road. I'm going to read this entirely... Every time we start a new book. The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth, and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. In one age, called the third age by some, an age yet to come, an age long past, a wind rose in the mountains of mist. The wind was not the beginning. There are neither beginnings nor endings in the turning of the wheel of time, but it was a beginning. Okay, so I have two things to say. The first is that I think this is where Jordan is at his best, is like lending gravitas to metaphorical stuff like this. Like things that make you think this, like this passage is important. I need to pay attention right here. I think that he um, sometimes can get caught in the weeds when describing the embroidery on a cloak. <laughs> uh, but I think that this is like peak. This is why I love the books is because there are moments like this where he will drop a line or paragraph that just stick with you because there's so much meaning behind it. Even like you don't need to know the meaning to know that this one paragraph is important. Uh, I, I just like particularly how it's it's there is no beginning and there is no ending. And this is not the beginning, but it's a beginning. I I don't know, something about that phrasing I really appreciated. Yeah, it's very it just, clutter. It was just very good. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think I think it's interesting that Tyler thinks that this is like where he's best. Because I don't think that Robert Jordan indulges in this kind of writing very much. No, no. I think there's like maybe one... Or two, there's definitely one other section in this um, part that we're going to do. I think there might only be like one or two more in this same book. I think he only hits it like three, I don't know, maybe a half dozen times at most um, in any of the individual books. Um, but I think every time he hits it, it's like a big moment. It doesn't even have to be a big plot moment. It's just a moment that like has gravitas to it. Um, also... I really hope that they open every episode of the show with this, and I know that they won't. Maybe not every episode. It'll be like Full Metal Alchemist, except it's that. I hope it's every episode. (laughs) So, we are introduced to Rand Althor, who is a simple shepherd from the Two Rivers, (laughs) and his father, Tam. As they walk the path from the... 
their farm, where they live alone on the outskirts of their village of Edmondsfield, sort of into the main hub area. It's been a long winter, and they're both carrying weapons. Uh, Rand has his bow with an arrow knocked, and Tam is carrying a spear. Very early on, Rand is established as not just, like, totally useless. <laughs> and yeah. I feel like a lot of fantasy stories where the fantasy is about, like, progressing to great heights, a lot of the times the narrator starts as being completely useless. And that's not Rand, even from the very start. Part of me was wondering when I was first reading what's the significance of the last name, because the owl made me think of, like, algebra and how that... <laughs> no, I'm, I'm sorry! Serious? No, because the, the, the prefix for... Ah, Jesus. Um, but the, the, the prefix for, like, algebra, Allah, all that sort of stuff with um, Islam and th- those words, they, they start with A-L, which I'm assuming this isn't. This is just fantasy last name. But that, that was my first thought. I was like, is this going in a vaguely ethnic manner? And then it just made me think, probably not. They're, they're just white. It's fantasy mech. Yeah. 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 Son of. Oh, yeah. okay. Okay. That's good to know. So he's like Rand McThor. Yeah. Mm, McThor. That's that's an unfortunate name. But yeah, I think perhaps in my original reading of this chapter, I didn't realize the familiar relationship between them. Perhaps this is a downfall of me skimming. I knew they were, were close. Were you skimming? Well, apparently I always skim. Because... Why were you skimming when you could be traveling? Huh. That's a joke for people that have With a capital T. I don't know, maybe I was distracted by how many paragraphs was spent describing the grass and the trees <laughs> and the wind and the horse and but the ground. You, but I bet you feel like you could picture that really well. Yeah, which I actually, I, I, I mean, like, I love world building, so I did appreciate that. I was just also confused because we just came from a man feeling a lot of pain and changing a landscape to uh, two bros and their horse on the ground. Five feet yeah. apart because they're father and son. Yeah. Yeah, basically. Yeah, things can get a little lost in the details sometimes. Yeah. So as they're walking, a a black rider appears behind them, a cloaked figure on horseback, you could say. Just like covered in these black cloaks, covering the face, um, covering much of the body. Um, and Rand is just like, glancing over his shoulder behind him when he sees this figure following them slowly and Rand just feels like hatred and malice coming off of this uh, figure um, staring at them. He feels fear, nausea, and so he like turns and looks at the rider and then looks at Tam to be like, hey, uh, there's somebody following us, and then he looks back and the rider is just gone. And Tam is like, well, let's go look it out. And Rand says, no, I think uh, I think we should just leave. Like, we should just not be here right now. So I think, fairly, this series is accused of being slow a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But within three pages of the first chapter starting, we have this glimpse of a ominous black rider that generates a lot of mystery actually you have these details the thing that really stuck out to me was his cloak not moving with the wind Mm -hmm. 
it creates a lot of questions and it's three pages into the first chapter mm-hmm. so i just think it's worth noting robert jordan knows that he can be boring but he makes sure that you know that something is happening deep down yeah i think this section would have been a lot harder to get through if you hadn't seen the black rider until like chapter four. Oh my god that would be terrible yeah i think that would straight up be like put the book down never touch it level i was mostly like oh did you know that darkness is bad are you serious <laughs> i'm sorry I, that's just my initial response just like with the first paragraph of the prologue i was like hmm death and destruction bold choice i was like oh yeah dark cloak is bad um, but I, I really did like the part where it was talking about feeding the flame and the void with Oh, well, we're, we're going to talk about that, I think. Yeah, I thought that was really good. And it also made me think about um, elements and how they can be gendered, because a lot of things in this book are gendered already from the first. The elements are gendered. Well, good to know. <laughs> um, I, I was just thinking of how how elements in just general concepts of earth, fire, water, etc. Fire is seen as really masculine. Fire and earth are the masculine ones. Okay, thanks. I'm just. I'm. Hey, <laughs> you brought it up. And and then the the void for me at least I tend to see a void as more feminine because there's both the beginning of life and the end of life, both and the potential for all the life to come, but as well as the absence and the removing of life. Which, in its way, is its own circle of life, its own wheel, turning time, etc. But I just thought it was really interesting how it's this kind of boring scene, but then suddenly, scary, scary, is it a visage, is it real? And uh, thinking about where you place these negative emotions and where you just channel all of that. That that was interesting for me. Channel it, huh? Um, For me, I think I was really, like, thinking back on it, I'm really glad that the void is established so early as like a thing because it would be it would just be horrible if you got to the point where the void becomes like a consistent element in the plot and you just didn't know what it was. Like I think it's if you pick up on it pretty quick, it can get repetitive to like have to hear about it every single time it happens and how it works and how you activate it and what it does. But I think it's really important that uh, it gets hammered home to the reader, like, pay attention, this is what the Void is, you cannot forget what the value of the skill is. I think it also serves to show that Rand and Tam aren't just nobodies. Yeah. Like, there's something about them that makes them good at things. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, like, you need your main character to be good at something, right? And that's kind of what you were mentioning before. Like, they have skills. And in fact, uh, that's something that I I didn't think about until um, this, like, third read-through of this book. But it's it's really interesting that they keep mentioning, like, hey, this character um, from the Two Rivers is good at this skill. And it almost gets a little like, oh, are they all good at it? But then you think about it and you're like, well, they all grew up like in the woods. They should all be good at like using a sling, using a bow, being quiet while hunting. So like it establishes that these characters are competent at their skills. I had a note. It had this quote where 
He says, that was the way of most Two Rivers people. People who had to watch the hail beat their crops or their wolves t- or the wolves take their lambs and start over, no matter how many years it happened, did not give up easily. Most of those who did were long since gone. And I think a part of this, something that comes up a few times in the series, is a bit of race essentialism. Uh-huh. <laughs> Even in this first part, there's like... 10 references to how shady Terran's fairy folk are. And spoiler, they turn out to be a little shady. Oh, wow. I'm so surprised. <laughs> yeah, as like, you can't trust people from that town. It's a little like. <laughs> I was definitely really feeling how you mentioned this is a bit Lord of the Rings inspired in regards to the the race essentialism and like these whole group of people are bad because <laughs> this it felt pretty heavy on that and then also as the village continues to get introduced and their traditions i was just like are these hobbits are these just <laughs> tall hobbits because the, the 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 values and the very traditional nature of it felt like that and then I also have more to add regarding cultural norms like heteronormativity and um, some other influences, but I can wait until later in the chapter. That will yeah. become relevant later in the series, actually. Okay. Speaking uh, of which, later in the chapter. Later in the chapter. Later in the chapter. <laughs> yeah. Um, so they finally reach the town of Edmondsfield. More you say Edmondsfield? That's what it is, isn't it? Emonsfield. You're joking. <laughs> It's Somebody... not, Ed... not Edmondsfield. No, 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 no. Type that in right now. It's Emonsfield. Oh, no. <laughs> you gotta take back his nerd card. Oh, no, I'm a hashtag fake fan. He's messed up. You gotta grill him. It I mean, is Emonsfield. Tyler, oh. this is a surprising about. Like... There's a town, there's a city called <laughs> Camelin, and he was like, oh, they're gonna go to Camelian. I'm like, excuse me? No, 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 it was Camelian. <laughs> yeah, but no, it's just Camelin. Easier to say. This is, well, I think it's a facet of, like, me having read it so early, and so my brain just says, like, oh, that's what it's called, and then just, like, auto-completes it. All right, well, so we arrive in Emonsfield. We arrive in Emonsfield. <laughs> Were you, actually, wait, were you going to say Oh, something? I was going to say, um, with, with words that are both real in real life versus real in this world, um, Beltane, um, the moment I read that, I was just thinking Beltane, which is essentially um, Gaelic Mayday, also kind of witchy. Um, huh. But uh, it's it's the celebration of spring, and so it's it seems very fitting since it was describing surviving the winter to the spring. So, maybe... so you're saying that there might be some sort of connection between real life Tyler. events. What? No, it's not like a spoiler. <laughs> but yes, yeah, I was just like, oh, it's Beltane. And then f- further on in the chapter, they describe specifically a pole and ribbons. And I was like, yep, it's May Day. And so it was just interesting to, to find more of those little notes. And so with the sheep and the emphasis of like sheep and some somewhere, somewhere in the chapter, someone's called a sheep stealer. And the whole Beltane, and I was like, oh, this, this is like fake Scotland and fake sheep buggers. Okay, I got this. <laughs> that, that, that's really how, how I got with the uh, village dynamics. Ignoring gender. So yes, as they arrive in Emond Field for 
Beltane. Um, we get a description of the wisdom uh, named Nineveh, who is the best. We find that Tam is uh, seemingly well-liked in the community. It sounds like pretty much everybody he passes comes up and he's like, Oh, hey, Tam, you're the best. And he's like, <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, hey, marry my widowed sister. Uh, pass on your seed. Thanks. That that's that's the feeling I got. I'm just saying. Kinda, yeah. And there 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 was a lot of like a good man needs a good woman behind him to function. Well, especially yeah. here. I mean, uh, I think Tam is just supposed to be like dream daddy. So, <laughs> is it because of his sword? Don't worry, we'll get to the sword. Okay. <laughs> um. So they arrive at the inn where they're going to deliver this brandy, and Matt. Uh, Matrim Cawthon, truly, uh, is there, Rand's friend. They talk for a minute, uh, they talk with the owner of the inn, who is the father of a girl named, oh gosh, what was the pronunciation? Was it- Egwene. Egwene? Was that it? Egwene. Egwene. Um, I know I- I'll accept anything. Yeah, Egwene. The father of Egwene, who, as soon as- like, the thought of her comes up. Rand is like, whew, sure hope I don't have to talk with her. Yeah, she makes my insides funny. She makes me feel weird. <laughs> so these are the three boys who are chads who think they aren't chads. Well, no, we're still missing a chad. Okay. But yes. But yes, these the these three friends that are being introduced are the... Yeah, yes, the third the, one comes up soon. Yeah. Protagonist boys. Yes. The protagonist boys are all definitely Chads. Okay. So, we've all mostly lived in the city. I don't know... Matt mentions wanting to release a badger into somebody's house? <laughs> Is this like a rural thing? Is this like... No, I think Is it's this a what the kids thing. do? Okay. It's just a Matt thing. It's the badgers. Yeah. I mean... Okay. They... I think they... He gives like details on like three separate matt pranks so. yeah there I mean, was i feel like people who do it for the vine or something or the equivalent <laughs> or do, do do it for the tiktok or whatever's relevant now i think that's definitely a thing oh my god but... matt would totally do it for the vine <laughs> he would yeah matt is like the definite anyway it's not important sorry <laughs> um... that, that, that's kind of the vibe i got so rand and matt speak and they uh they like pool their knowledge and find out that they have both been seeing this black rider and they Matt mentions like, could it have been the dark one or even the dragon? And Rand drops this line that I will again read <clears throat> because it's, it's so robotic. Um, <clears throat> the dark one and all the forsaken are bound in shale ghoul beyond the dark blight bound by the creator at the moment of creation bound until the end of time. The hand of the creator shelters the world and the light shines on us all. Like, as soon as he says that, the vibe I get is totally, like, as soon as anybody says the phrase the Dark One, I feel like everybody just snaps to attention and says that phrase. I mean, it's one thing to, like, cross yourself. It's another to, like, recite a whole paragraph. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, the light's gonna protect you, so you gotta say that every time. Light well, illumine you all. <laughs> May you walk in the light. All right. Okay, so that's chapter one down. 
So chapter two, strangers. Uh, the pair of boys are finishing up their task of unloading this brandy, and they're just on their way out of the inn when a younger boy, um, I think they said age 14, and that there were a few years between them. Um, I've always read that the three boys are like 19, maybe 20. In my mind, they're more like 18. They very well could be. I'm sure someone knows the actual answer. I was guessing 17 just because they... They read young in regards to social, but older because they, they've, like, worked with the land, but younger because they're not city folk having time to mature in that way. Because they each know, like, ten people. <laughs> I think Matt uh, especially reads as young. Uh, they all are the same age. I know that. Yeah. But yes, I think they're probably, yeah, you're probably right that it's more like 17, 18. Uh, so the younger boy comes up. I didn't bother with his name. So <laughs> the boy comes up. And describes a beautiful woman, a visiting lady, capital L lady, with her guard. And I think he calls her Moraine. Um, it looks like it should be Moiraine, but I refuse. No, it's Moraine. Um, and I don't remember if he drops the name Lan, but we find out the name Lan very soon. Uh, do you remember? B? The, the person? The yeah. person named Lan? Well, I mean... When the name gets dropped, that's not really important. It's not important. I, I don't think he's considered as significant as the, the cool, mysterious lady. Not yet. Beyond, I think, I'm not sure if it's mentioned that he might be a warder then or not, but I know it becomes mentioned. Yeah, later. that's one thing, actually. They mention thinking that Tam might be a warder before they consider that Moraine could be Aes Sedai. And I had thought that warders were just for Aes Sedai. But I, I guess I'm wrong. I mean, I think the that's definitely how it like actually plays out in reality. But I think that the stories are definitely. I mean, the stories mention that like Aes Sedai are crazy witch crones that steal your soul by looking at you or something. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. Yeah, there's a line later on that I highlighted where I think Rand says something like, "If she really was an Aes Sedai, she should look horrific." Yeah. Oh no, the big scary witch. I definitely was not pronouncing that word the way we're pronouncing it now. No, I I don't either. Um, in my mind, it, I, I want to hear yours first. I've been definitely doing like a Sedai. That's I think what that might also be correct. That is how I or have always correct. said it. Is a Sedai. So in the pronunciation guide, it is I Sedai. I have always said it a Sedai. I I don't mind either way. Is is this guy? British English, American English, he's American. Australian. He's American. He's American? Okay. Because that'll also influence how you pronounce these, because it seems like there's a lot of different roots for the names that are given. But I think it's also definitely supposed to be European. It, it is super Eurocentric already, you yeah. can tell. It's like, these people are white. Yeah, it gets... Yeah. Does it get worse? There's actually a good bit of, like, Eastern like philosophy. Skin. Yeah infused into the story actually that'll come yeah, up later absolutely is is this a monotheistic or or is 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 the wheel god essentially in this world i know uh, the creator is god the wheel is like the concept of time yeah like the concept of time or chance or fate or whatever okay. like the wheel is unfeeling the wheel creates reality the creator is like the essence of light We'll get and, more of that later. Yeah, but yeah, I don't more think there's like okay. 
I don't remember if there's explicit religion outside of the creator, good, dark one, bad. It just seems interesting because they, they, beyond like swearing, which is like blood and ashes or whatever, people are often like, ah, light, something, something. And I'm yeah. just like, oh, they really love the light. Yeah. So Rand sounds uneasy at the mention of these characters um, coming in. Just like, he's like, I don't like random people coming into our town. Um, he's He doesn't come off as like xenophobic, just like, why are they here right now? Why would you come to this small sheep village? Yeah. And Matt is like super hyped about it. Um, I think cause... he uses the words, this is going to be the best Beltine ever. Yes. Yes, he does. <laughs> um, so everything is Matt's fault. Yeah, he's excited about that and a gleam in and then... Like, this is still the start of the chapter, and he may as well turn to the camera and say, this is going to be the best Beltine ever. And it's just, like, it's so explicit. <laughs> so the two of them leave the inn uh, along with the younger boy. They see, like, a crow standing on a rooftop. And Matt is like, I hate crows. And Rand's <laughs> like, yeah. And so they pick up rocks and start throwing them at this crow. This is what also makes them seem young. Who's like, you know what, this creature that's been associated with bad omens, let's throw rocks at it. Yeah, and so... I think think either, I can't remember if it's either Rand or Matt, one of them says, I'm tired of being stared at. Yeah, yeah, Matt's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the crow activates Ultra Instinct and just like (laughs) dodges all of the rocks. It activates its Sharingan. Yeah, it pops its Sharingan and dodges all the rocks and just like keeps watching them. Um, and then Moraine shows up behind them, and she is, like, described as the most beautiful person in existence. She's got this, like, long, dark hair in soft ringlets, and this, like, beautiful blue cloak, and she's small and waif-like, and, um... Every man who reads fantasy is wet dream. Yeah. Pretty much. There was one line that I felt really was worth pointing out when describing Moraine. Yeah. It was... She was barely tall enough to come up to his chest, but her presence was such that her height seemed the proper one, and he felt ungainly in his tallness. Yeah, I was... That's some good shit. (laughs) Yeah, I was hoping that that was the one, because, like, I didn't pick that out, but as soon as I saw that you had done that, I was like, yeah, yeah, that's a really good line. She totally comes off as this, like, almost all-knowing... She definitely seems like she knows a lot. She is cooler than you and you will ever be. Yeah. Um, I wish I could grow up to be Moraine. You're too tall and ungainly. Um, She gives them each a coin and it's, this might be an extremely mild spoiler. It's revealed later on in this book that she did something to the coins. Um, And based on the fact that Rand and Matt are immediately like, I'm not spending this. Yeah. Yeah. versus the kid like it makes me wonder if whatever she did to the coins compels them to keep it and she specifically didn't do it to the kids which i mean i'm sure is if you wanted to read into it like that seems like a perfectly viable explanation yeah there's Um, some stuff in here that makes me think that moraine is doing some mind whammy on them uh, there's this line that says, She smiled, and Rand found himself wondering if there was anything he might do for her, something that would give him an excuse to stay near her. Is is that, like, Jedi mind tricks, or just the power of a cute girl, though? That's the thing. I think, like, the naive reading is, like, cute girl, but, like, I think you're supposed to think she's doing a little bit of Jedi mind tricks on them, although that's not something she really does much later. 
Yeah, and she, you picked out a quote about, like, she is, she sounds delighted that the boys know who she is, but not knowing that, like, she would be an event that they would tell their grandkids about. It's like her (laughs) showing up. So at this point, Moraine walks away and Lan just like appears from nothing in his cloak where he's a chameleon. And he's just like a super huge dude with a super scary face. (laughs) And a super sick cloak. And a super sick cloak. That's how you measure the levels of people. How detailed is their cloak? Unironically. This but unironically? (laughs) Yeah. Bruh, your cloak is so nice. Like, characters don't do it in uni- Well, I guess they do. But, like, that's almost how you can tell, is how much description does their cloak have. Okay, so the chapter ends with Matt still staring into the camera uh, after that comment about the best Beltine ever, and then Rand, like, joins him in frame to also say the phrase, this is going to be the best Beltine ever, at which point the peddler appears. Into the chapter, called the peddler. Into the chapter, called the peddler. So the arrival of the peddler summons uh, everybody in the village, like they're crowding around. Um, I think a couple people will walk up later, um, but pretty much everybody is there. Um, And this is where we meet Perrin. Perrin. Uh, I picked out a segment. Yes, please. He could have easily pushed through the throng, but that was not his way. He picked his path carefully, offering apologies to people who had only half a mind to notice anything but the peddler. He made the apologies anyway, and tried not to jostle anyone as he worked through the crowd to Rand and Matt. Oh such my god, nice Perrin is boy. such a good boy. He's such, such a, a good, good boy. boy. He's such a good boy. <laughs> good, soft, kind boy. Yeah, he is the best boy. Um, he's just so good. Everybody loves Perrin, except for the part where they hate him. Um, <laughs> we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Give it ten books. Does he betray everybody? Nah. i mean that just seems like the easiest way like oh no one of the three turned to the dark um well not him no no spoilers tyler (laughs) sorry we'll cut that out uh so we get some background information while the uh peddler whose name is padden fane is talking about um the dragon False dragons popping up, uh, men who can channel the one power, um, how they always go mad from using it. How every time a false dragon pops up, it means war. Uh, hundreds or thousands will die. I just got a One Piece vibe when I, when I read, like, the one power and dragon and all this <laughs> stuff. I was just like, is is this One Piece? Because the, the like, one power and the madness. Do you exist only as, like, a bundle of associations? That's how brains work. Beyond, I was wondering something. Mm. How do you feel about this crowd writing? Did it stand out to you at all, or...? Ah, yeah, about the whole, the whole, like, cacophony about the dragon, and the false dragon, and the real dragon, and the prophecies, and is this a thing? Um, honestly, my original impression of the crowd was, like, this is like people in a small rural village getting excited when the Wells Fargo wagon comes by. <laughs> like like ancient times, like, oh my, the news has finally come to our small town. And then, yeah, it seemed like a lot of exclamation points. And it seems like there was a lot of belief in the mystical aspects of like prophecy and breaking the world. 
And it, it seems like, ah, yes, magic is real here. This is normal. Yeah, magic is not questioned as being real in this world. Yeah, it just seems like, look at the masses worrying sort of dynamic to it. Should I have noticed something else? No, I was just curious because it stood out to me. There's another very important crowd scene later, where, and I'll talk about it then. But I wish I could read that whole scene. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, they are the three boys are standing together in the crowd. Um, Rand makes uh, he's like yelling at Perrin over the crowd about something, um, and I know this is out of order, uh, but it's mentioned that Fane like has only taken notice of them recently, that they've only recently become men. And that babies. Yeah, and so... So eventually the village council comes out of the inn and they're like, hey, Fane, come on, we want to talk to you because if there's a false dragon, are we all going to die? Because I guess, I don't know if, like, they don't know how maps work, um, but I don't think the false dragon is that close to them. And certainly, like, I mean... The Two Rivers is the back end of nowhere. Well, I mean, if this is a small village where they raise sheep, do you really think literacy is a high priority? Your priority is surviving the fact that wolves come and nature destroys your crops, so you gotta keep surviving. So I don't think, like, literacy in a map would necessarily be the most critical thing. Yeah, I think actually one person mentions that there is one map in the town. Yeah. Okay. Something um, to note. Yes. Oh, yeah. yes. What are we noting? On page 58, we memorialize... The fact that gender essentialism is part of the universe. On page 58, someone mentions that only women can touch their true power. It kind of actually starts from chapter one, where, where the gender stuff, and I actually chose not to emphasize some of the gender stuff when we were discussing chapter one. I mean, one. that's like cultural stuff. I mean, like, this is essentially saying gender affects the mechanics of this world. Yeah, it's like yeah. codified. <laughs> it's... It- it's um, disconcerting on several <laughs> levels for me. Um, it's it's a lot to unpack. I I think just some interesting things about the like roles and labels is that the village council seems to be mostly dudes, and then it's all dudes. It's all dudes. It's all dudes on the village council, and then women have wisdom and they can touch the all powerful thing without you know madness and wasting away and dying. And so I just found it interesting how the women's circle is juxtaposed with the village council and women seem to have power, but at the same time, it's this very specific niche of wisdom and healing and um, protecting and nurturing. And so it, it seems like it's supposed to be set up as an equal divide in power, but it's also totally not. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, the 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 whole women has healing magic uh in general bothers me and the whole like women are more inherently nurturing and wise is also not exactly a good good stereotype because it's just as toxic and harmful as being like men are dangerous beasts um because each of them just just allow it it's just permissive of poor behavior you're gonna meet a lot of non-nurturing women Nice. Something about Nanave. <laughs> yeah, coughs in Nanave. <laughs> she seems cool. Like that. Oh, she's that's because Nanave's the best. <laughs> she seems just very like small and spunky, and like would kick your ass. Yeah. Okay. 
let's move forward so we can get to Nave. So the one thing that I uh, do want to quote here is there is a like a really good passage that sort of describes how each of the boys feel about this, about like the idea of a false dragon. I don't see how Gleeman could beat this, Matt said excitedly. You think we might get to see this false dragon? Perrin shook his shaggy head. I don't want to see him here. Somewhere else, maybe, but not in the two rivers. Not if it means war. Not if it means Aesidai here either, Rand added. Or have you forgotten who caused the breaking? The dragon may have started it, but it was the Aesidai who actually broke the world. So, like, I just think it does a really good job of illustrating, like, Matt's thought immediately goes to, like, what's the most exciting thing? Yeah, I think it's telling that he uses the words, get to see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And Perrin is like, yeah, but not, like, here. Not in front of my salad. Yeah. Wait, what? Sorry, that's, that's, it's a meme. You'll have to tell me about it later. Okay. Um, yeah, and then Rand is just like, no, no weird stuff. Um, are Aesidai specifically women- Or is that a gender-neutral term? So that's what's interesting, and I actually have a a note about that that I I guess I guess I'll come back to it later. But in the context that the characters are talking about, they think of Aes Sedai as only being women. Although in this, yeah, not if it means Aes Sedai here. I guess they could be thinking about it as like Aes Sedai would show up to fight the dragon. Um, Yeah, they are thinking about it in the context of women. But what's interesting, because of what we find out explicitly later, um, is that, like, Aes Sedai are blamed for the breaking of the world. And so I just think it's, I just think the way that Jordan, like, specifically twists the way that history has come forward into their modern lives, um, as, like, the truth isn't actually, it's, like, just off enough that you could see the telephone path from what happened to what they think. Um, so we get our first appearance of Nenave after the uh, the peddler leaves and everybody disperses, and Nenave comes up behind the boys. She hears them talking about the false dragon, and she is A, unhappy, B, perfect in every way. <laughs> um, she is... Uh, I don't want to use like too many words that make it obvious how much I like her, but uh, she's like... She's fiery, she's angry, she's commanding, not in a pleasant way. Uh, <laughs> you no. just want to be domed. No, not, no, I think she, she's like actually a really good character. I think this has something to do with that Bion uses savage takedowns to show their love. Yeah. <laughs> you like Nenave, right? Yeah, she's cool. Can you? Um, I mean, I we mean, haven't like, really seen that much of her yet. I, I don't think I've seen enough of her beyond, like, being... I, I hope she isn't the angry woman trope who henpecks men. That that was my biggest hope. I was like, please don't make her a joke of, to, like, aggressive femininity. That, that was really what I was thinking. No. I think if the book, or if the story wasn't as long as it is, it could have come off that way. But, like, there is room for all of these characters to grow. And she goes through a lot of it. Yeah, just based on what I've read, there can be an uncharitable reading where you yeah. can think of it that way. But I think with all of the context that comes, it doesn't really come off that way. I think even at like the end of the second book, 
she is like she gets much better even that soon cool yeah. just as long as she's not one-dimensional oh the no. women's no no no, no. not even she's a little bit. she's probably like the most detailed female character so far <laughs> yeah i can't think of any character that is like more detailed than her not female ones so is the point of view always from the boys no okay no we get to god i don't even know like not let's, counting we, prologues we, we won't let's not spoil like exactly no how. i wasn't gonna list them i was just yeah. gonna say the god i don't know it's gotta be like 15 or 20 Okay. The point of views become much more expansive. That That's good to know. I was just wondering. Like, there are characters that will get, like, half a chapter in their point of view, and then, like, never again. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, as long as it's still useful to describing what's going on, that's totally fine. I just wanted to make sure, um, especially if we are seeing diverse female characters in their role in the society, I just making sure that they are being viewed with different views, not just boys. No. Yeah, that starts more in the second book, though. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The first book is definitely written as like, this is this one book. The second book is very clearly like, this is a series. So I just have to endure the first book. Yeah. It's not always as bad. It's just kind of the start is very like in a village. I have to say that only until the third book did I realize that some of Jordan's writing choices were actually intentional narrative voice. Because yeah. when, when he got to a certain character's perspective, that we had seen a lot of, but never gotten his perspective before, and I enjoyed it immensely. It made me realize that everything is from point of view, and I was being uncharitable to his writing. Yeah, there's definitely some stuff that comes off as, like, where it's tough to tell the line between, like, is this what the character is thinking? He gets much better at it. Like, having just read New Spring, which I know there's... I don't know exactly when that version was written because I know there's like an early one and then book seven and then I don't know. I just know it was written later. He gets so much better at it. Like it is so clear in that book what perspective you're reading from and how they are seeing reality based on their perspective. So look forward to it. Okay, so Nenev stalks off after berating the boys. Um, Egwene is still there. She was kind of hiding behind the nave and is now speaking with Rand and they are written like I hate their conversations <laughs> because they're so well written as like both teens that are really bad at talking to each other. Rand has his foot permanently affixed to the inside of his mouth and Egwene is like permanently looking for a fight. She's ready to fight you. She really is. I appreciate that. And so it's just, I mean, there's only so much to say. It's just, it's really well written. It's just, it's uncomfortable to read. Secondhand embarrassment. <laughs> Kinda, yeah. Uh, one thing to note about Egwene is they tell her about the Black Rider that all three of them have seen, and she dismisses them. She says, people do ride horses, you know, that doesn't make them monsters out of a Gleeman's tail. Yes, I remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it makes you think how many other times have they told her tall tales about their random adventures. Yeah, Matt specifically. They talk yes, about how no one believes breaks. anything Matt says. Yeah. They're like, we should find a witness that isn't Matt. Yeah, they're like, Matt saying that he saw this character might actually make us less believable. <laughs> so the conversation ends, the chapter ends, uh, the Gleeman shows up out of the inn. 
And they haven't really established what a Gleeman is up to this point, except that he's like super hype. Um, and so the guy pops out. He's this super old dude with this huge mustache that like, I know it's not a handlebar mustache, but the way that they describe it, like going around his mouth and down to the side of his face, like it sounds like handlebars. I just really did not like the Gleeman the moment. I was like, ugh. He definitely starts off as like... I mean, he's highly performative. Yeah, that's the thing. That's like his whole character. Yeah, he's like, in this scene, he is performing so that people will give him money later. It felt kind of like Jiraiya in Naruto. (laughs) That's the level of ugh that, that I got from reading about this character. I guess I could see that. Just like showboating and gross old man. Okay, I'm going to say his name out loud. Tom Marilyn. Yeah. Is anybody going to fight me? No. Thom. How dare you? <laughs> uh, Tom, uh, his appearance establishes him as, I mean, he's like larger than life because he's performing, um, but he sounds like he knows everything in the world. Yeah, they say his voice echoes no matter where he is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And he, like, starts off the conversation by pulling out three balls and starting to juggle. And, like, every time dialogue comes back to him, he just adds another ball. Uh, And he ends up, he's juggling, like, six balls. And then he ends up, like, going back and forth. And then three with each hand. Um, He seems really proud. And, like, yeah, he comes off like he knows everything. Uh, It's not in the way that, like, Moraine knows everything, where she seems like high and mighty um, and like she she understands things about the world that you don't tom just seems like oh that's so cute that you thought that like here's the actual truth of what it's like out there for this thing that you think yeah that sort of flows into what i was thinking in that matt tries to boast to tom marilyn about how far they've traveled and it's adorable yeah he, like, goes higher up in the village as this conversation goes on, and he's listing out um, stories that he could tell. Be I'm careful, gonna... Tyler. No, 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 no. Uh, I'm not going to talk about that stuff. Um, so I will read your quote, if you don't want to, um, about the uh, timeline that he sure, lays out, because yeah. it's pretty... Uh, so he says... I will tell you of the age of legends, of the dragon and his attempt to free the Dark One into the world of men. I will tell of the time of madness, when Ace Sedai shattered the world, of the Trolloc Wars, when men battled Trollocs for rule of the earth, of the War of the Hundred Years, when men battled men and the nations of our day were wrought. I mean, did this... I know you haven't had much need of a timeline yet, but did it, like, help you at all? It made me realize that if I liked doing more uh, in-depth analysis while reading, I could make a really cool timeline between Age of Legends, the Third Age, all these different times. I, I think they're they're interesting, and it makes me realize the importance of the dragon even more. But yeah, it definitely felt a little dramatized too. I was more just like, "Oh, look, it's dragon versus the dark one and madness." I mean, interestingly enough, Tom doesn't frame it as the dragon versus the dark one. He says the dragon and his attempt to free the dark one onto the world of men. So there's some like 
apocrypha going on with yeah. what Tom is talking about, like, a lot, which, like, gets explored more, which I think is good. Yeah, like, Tom is... Tom is telling this story, and, like, the dragon is sort of, like, the central figure of all of history. Like, you can pretty much trace back any event after the dragon um, and the Aes Sedai breaking the world to the dragon. And, like, his importance in history. Is the dragon always a he, and then does the... the dragon is specifically referring to Lucerne, Telemon. It's one particular person. He is the only dragon that has ever been and will ever be. In any of these stories, he is the dragon. They are referring to Lucerne, Telemon. Then, th- then how do these false dragons appear up? Does like Lucerne just sometimes casually die? And uh, then I like, mean, I think you could read I'm it like Luz in Theron. the back of the book, uh, or like on the back cover if it was a physical book. Um, there are prophecies about the dragon coming back. And people claim to be him. Yeah, people claim to be the dragon reborn, but they are called false dragons because they are never the dragon reborn. They get into that. Okay. We can talk about it. This okay. is a good thread to pick up on. I just wanted to know, I was like, so so the, can't pronounce it, but the cool witchy ladies who are blamed for ruining the world are a group of things, of people who do the things, but then the dragon is a singular presence throughout history. No, well, he's one no. particular guy. He is like one particular guy that existed at one particular time. It's just that the one thing that he did echoes throughout all of history after that point. Because he literally changed the continent that they live on. Because he like changed the continent. He changed the fabric of like how magic works. He changed the fabric of like how the light interacts with the dark. He's like the central figure in all of the history of this world. Okay. At least to these characters. Okay. I think this is part of why it's important that we have someone that doesn't have context. Yeah, because, like, <laughs> this is all stuff that makes... You wouldn't ask any of these questions by the end of this book. Well, you're the ones limiting no, 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 no. ten I, chapters, no, 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 no. so I, you're going to get I these questions. All I meant by that was, like... No, we're, we're glad. Yeah, we're happy that you are asking these questions because it makes us realize, like, when did they actually explain this? Cool. It's easy to forget how much we already know. So it's good to, like, get reminded of, like, where we're actually at with, like, the stuff. Yeah, speaking of which, how much have they mentioned the phrase the Age of Legends? Because I don't remember how much... I just know that, like, people keep saying the phrase the Age of Legends to this point. I just don't remember how much. It's it's in the first thing where it's, like, the, the thing that starts every book. I think mm-hmm. it mentions Legends then. And then I think... Does does Tom men- yeah Tom mentions it here and then I don't remember if the peddler mentioned it at all but I think it's at least two probably three times but, minimum but you don't have any like conception of what it is except that it's the legendary age of hey hey it's legendary yeah it it seems significant but I think there is also a lot of capitalization so it really wants you to know did you know that there's this own system of magic and legend and mystery yeah i should point out like that thing in the beginning of the book about like legend fades to myth is referring to something like that's more the concept of legend the age of legend because it's capitalized is like like how the dragon is not like an idea or like a group like, it is the dragon. It is the Age of Legends. It's like referring to a specific thing. Um, so I was just curious. I might ask you that every single time we do this. Is like, what did we learn about the Age of Legends this week? I just think it's interesting co- comparing my notes to the notes that you two have made. 
Uh, mine are definitely more just about like culture and what does it mean to come of age in this village and who are adults and who aren't and what are the roles that every villager plays, mm-hmm. which is like not something we've been discussing at all, which is totally fair. But I just think it's an interesting thing how when I'm reading because all I have is this, I'm very much the minute details of every chapter. Like what does it mean to have braided versus unbraided hair? Yeah. Or like when is someone able to be married and what does that mean in this village? Versus since you two have the context of like, not just these 10 chapters but whole stories and i don't know it's just interesting to see what is continued to be valued as you continue on through the story like Mm -hmm. what is actually necessary to the key plot points yeah versus what is just this author loving to describe things to the minute details please feel free to like talk about the stuff that stands out to you i think that's important yeah it would especially i mean it's especially good for me because like i don't because I never share my opinions except when I do, and then there's so many opinions. Well, like, especially with this, I don't remember... I mean, I don't even remember what it's like to think that. Like, I read these books when I was so young that straight up the only thing that I remembered from this first book before I reread it, like, two months ago, was part of the ending. Like, mm. I didn't remember how long this first part lasted. I didn't remember them going anywhere. Like, I remembered that they went somewhere. But the only part that stuck in my mind was, like, the last maybe 50 pages of the book. Yeah, this might be, like, the most detailed 24 hours in, like, the entire series. Yeah. Yeah, that's also good to know that the, the, the passing of time, I realized but between the first chapter and chapter 10, how little time had actually passed, even though it had felt like forever, because you'd been reading about it for so long. Yeah, like, I think if we start in the early afternoon in chapter one and i think chapter 10 ends in like the evening of the following day like dawn yeah. the next day or i guess it's not even dawn it's like middle no of it's the like night. the middle of the night yeah yeah um okay we should <laughs> continue we should finish this before it's tomorrow um so the boys the three of them together discuss like a plan for what to do about this black rider um, i think we talked about this like gathering more information getting other witnesses Tam comes by and is like, hey, Rand, McThor, let's go. And so those two head out. uh, And Rand is talking with Tam and Tam is like, yeah, we talked about the Black Rider in the village council. And Rand is sort of incredulous before Tam is like, we're not idiots. Like if all three of you saw it, there's probably something going on. So thank God. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't realize it until I read your note and, like, it clicked. But, like, wow, it's nice to have them notice. Wow, listening to children slash adults slash adolescents. Yeah, like, believing the protagonist. Yeah, there's some stuff that I have noted down later about, like, trope awareness, and this definitely plays into that. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so that's... Okay, wait, wait, wait. So the, the chapter ends with Rand, like... Again, turning to the camera and saying, There was nothing the black cloaked horseman could do that the people of Iman's field could not handle together. <sighs> like, come on, dude. <laughs> this is going to be a great celebration of spring. Nothing could go wrong. Yeah, like. Literally the best bell time ever. <laughs> it's so painful. Um, okay, so chapter five Winter Night. Uh, Rand and Tam return to their farm, and we get an extended sequence of Rand doing chores. 
which was boring, but I think it's also interesting because it talks about the traditional family units and how they're unusual to just be two dudes out here Mm -hmm. in the wilderness versus the like generational family units of like grandparents and all the other relatives and how they're kind of part of the village, but then doing their own thing outside the moment they leave. Yeah, like this section feels comfy in the like, we went home and we were like, ah, man, I really want to just turn in, but you got to do the chores. And like, he does the chores, he goes inside, he's like putting water on for tea. Tam is making stew. Like there's a book on the table and some shirts to be repaired. It's just like, it's so nice. Yeah, I think this is part of that level of detail that we talked about before. And I think Robert Jordan was very specifically being like, I need to know exactly what it takes to live on a farm just so I can write this half of a chapter. Yeah, he had to like go method act by living on a farm. Yeah, and so they're getting ready, setting the table, and... Rand notices that Tam is, like, pulling something out of a chest that... Also that Tam is, like, locking and barring the doors. Yeah, uh, which is something that they don't do. Um, And so Tam just comes back downstairs with a sword, which is definitely a katana. Uh, (laughs) Like, the more I think about it, it's a thousand percent a katana. So edgy. Yeah, it's, (laughs) like... Where's our Mountain Dew to drink alongside this podcast? How are you going to get your gamer fuel without this hair marked blade? <laughs> yeah, sorry, that's definitely what I thought. Um, Quenched in Mountain Dew. Doritos folded over a thousand times. <laughs> I mean, I didn't realize that it was like a katana until I saw it in like fan art. Yeah, until you said it, I was like, no, it's a sword. And then I reread the section and I'm like, oh, it's a katana. <laughs> It's like a thousand percent, like the way that they talk about the, um, I think it's Quillians, like the way yeah, that they um, talk about that, like it has to be a katana. Is is this the, the Eastern influences that you were mentioning earlier? It's like the first hint. Yeah, like the, the first dabble, like, whoa, look at the cool side. The, please, the heron marked blade. I think it's supposed to sort of tell you that like... Yeah, this is like medieval fantasy, but it's not just Tolkien or just a recreation of like the Middle Ages of Earth. Yeah, also this character has traveled slash has something more interesting to him besides just chilling with the sheep. That is absolutely also a thing. Yeah. This ain't your grandma's fantasy. So... Trollocs? Is that how they're pronounced? That's how I've been saying Trollocs. Okay, at first I was, did the, did they just word smush of troll and orc, but I then mean, wanted to make it slightly more unique? Yes, definitely. Okay. Also, Trollocs are a race? Question mark? Yes. And then, are they all evil? Like, how in Lord of the Rings all orcs are the bad, because they're just inherently bad? Are all Trollocs inherently bad, because yes. that, their race is bad, and they're mm-hmm. dark, and they're they're the, they're 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 the blackness and they're the bad and the dark. Well, I mean, they're more than like a race. I'd almost say they're more like a species. Yeah, yeah, they're not like a type of person. They're like specifically creatures twisted by the shadow. Okay. Uh, capital S shadow. Okay. Yeah, and I think this part is worth talking about. They're sitting down to dinner, 
and then a Trolloc bursts through the door, and then before Rand even knows what's happening, Tam has killed one of them. And there's like a spray of blood, and suddenly everything is happening, which is like totally the opposite of everything we've been reading for like the last five chapters. Yeah, everything has been really like slow and plotting and spelled out, and then Rand is like shook, and then... Yeah, like you said, I mean, it's just, it's instant that the first Trolloc is dead, and Tam is like, you gotta go, as more are coming in through the door. Yeah, Uh, and notably, Rand does go. Yeah. He says that he sort of feels ashamed at how he, how easily he listens to the advice. I think this is just more stuff about how much Rand contrasts with, like, a stereotypical fantasy self-insert protagonist he has survival instincts and is not all about chivalry till death yeah yeah he also like throws a pot of like boiling water at a trollic first it's like he's not totally useless but he also doesn't just like freeze but he'll also like listen to orders the description of the water felt really I don't know, it just felt like big imagery regarding the, the water yeah. hitting the, the Trolloc at first. So I was like, is is this secretly magic water? <laughs> or is this just hot water is Al? I think it's real hot. It's just real hot. Yeah. And part of me makes me want to... So if, if Tam knew enough to, like, barricade the doors, why didn't he prepare more? Is it just, like, wanting to protect Rand until the last minute? Or... I don't think he knew the extent of what was going to happen. Yeah, I think he was just like something. There's something strange in the neighborhood. Not like a full scale invasion. Yeah, not like there is actively about to be an attack. Mm. Just some bad vibes. Yeah, pretty just, much. There's just a bad energy in here. Uh, dark forces are afoot. Um, so Rand heads out of the house. He goes and hides in the woods. He's like debating whether to go back for Tam, and then. Tam shows up behind him with like the world's smallest, most poisoned scratch. And Rand is like, okay, well, I can't like, I can't do anything and we can't do anything with you out here in the woods. So I'm going to have to go back and get some stuff so that we can get you to town. Rand grabs the sword, goes back to the house and meets Narg. Um, <laughs> Narg, no hearth. You put sword down. (laughs) Narg is a Trolloc who can speak, which is perfectly in line with the rest of the series. (laughs) Uh, Trollocs are well known for their speaking capabilities. They speak to the characters often. And this is not a thing that, uh, I mean, it happens in every single book. Yeah, noted orators, Trollocs. I I don't even know why I'm saying this. I mean, it's just (laughs) so like run of the mill. How, How long are we continuing this? Rand says how unbelievably mind-blowing it is that a Trolloc is talking and then we never see it again but maybe that to me just seems like the 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 arrogance of man in this instant where it's like perhaps they just can't talk but they they do talk they just don't talk the same language that you okay i mean they they have their own language they do have their own language yeah so like clearly they do talk and it just seems a little arrogant like they they speak human, and it's like, well, if you've been around this long, how 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 could you not? Well, I mean, I. It's also worth noting that literally, Rand thought they didn't exist before tonight. Yeah. <laughs> Surprise! Angry, angry, big monster things that want to kill you are real. Yeah. 
so he like accidentally kills Narg. Uh, oops. Yeah, he like grabs some rags and some water. Um, heads out to the barn, grabs some stuff. There's a quote in here about the sword not being dull. My sword is unbelievably sharp. <laughs> it's just, I can't believe how sharp this sword is. That blade was still razor sharp. Yeah. Bjorn, did you think that the sword was magic after reading this? Because on my first read, I thought the sword was magic. Yeah, because I mean, swords are heavy and they get sticky and dull and <laughs> nasty and there's a bunch of entrails sticky? on it. It's just like swords and the way they were used are not beautiful. They are just like heavy weapons that you're just beating the other person with. Uh, please, sometimes swords are useful. Have you even seen someone do cat crossing the courtyard? Okay, Tyler. Calm down. <laughs> We're not gonna take away your katana when we take away your Mountain Dew. It's okay. <laughs> but yeah, it right. did seem magic. Just like how, how the water seemed really exciting. This sword was like, <gasps> the sword. It definitely comes across that way. And I think it's supposed to as like, this is not how swords work. So Rand gets all the stuff back to Tam. He builds a Litter, I believe is the pronunciation. I've never said that word out loud. Puts Tam on the litter and just, we're going to carry him back to the town. And we go into a chapter that doesn't exist. I don't no. have any notes for this chapter. No. Uh, Bion, you're going to have to kind of carry us. I was just surprised because it seems like uh, Rand gets some surprising revelations which really traumatize him. Perhaps it's because I'm adopted, but the fact that you might not be biologically related to your father doesn't surprise me. And I'm kind of just like, really? Really, Rand? This is what you're focusing on? <laughs> the, 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 the high fever? And you're like, oh, my father is is my fa my father! And it's like, friend, he's still a significant person in your life, no matter whether or not his sperm was used involved in creating you. Why are you yeah. focusing on this? Yeah, get used to a lot of italics of, he is my father. I, I refuse to believe he's not my father. He is still your father, you imbecile. He's dying now. Let's focus on that. So, I don't know. The, the whole chapter was just like, it is big spooky. The big spooky is following. We're going to die. And my father might not be <laughs> my father. That, that, that's what this chapter felt like. Yeah, like, I didn't take any notes because I think the chapter is, like, really well written. I think it's really tense. I just also think, like, there's not a lot to discuss. Like, Rand is just carrying Tam through the woods, and they're hiding from the Trollocs and the Cloaked Rider. But, I mean, it's really good, it's just... I don't even know if it's good. <laughs> Fair. I think I'm... Happy that I was allowed to skim it on this reread. Oh, me too. <laughs> so we're just going to go to the next chapter, chapter seven, Out of the Woods. Sure. I was actually just trying to see if I had a quote from the previous one because we spent oh, so yeah. little talking. And I'm not sure if it is, were we just discussing, is that chapter six? That, that we was six, discussing? yeah. Okay. Uh, called The Westwood. Um, I think from page 97, blood is the price of pride. I just thought that one was nice. Like, like, like a very poignant quote. When, when, when within the fever dream, like talking about like the, the cruelties of war and all the things he faced, mm -hmm. the, the, the blood is the price of pride. And just, I don't know, that that felt very, yep, war's bad. I, I, I thought that was just a very good, 
um, statement. And then, um, I don't know, with chapter seven, I felt like it was both going really fast and really slow. Yeah. It felt kind of with Pact, where everything was always rushing in Pact, but it was also like, why are you spending so long describing this one person and their interaction with this person? Yeah, like there's people in the back that don't know what Pact is. (laughs) It's the, it's in the top four Wild Bow stories. Look it up. (laughs) Look it up. D-A-C-T Pact. <laughs> yeah. Catch me just referencing books. But um, I also really found it funny that there this one side character, I think, Alsbet, just like beat a Trolloc with a frying pan and then went after it with a big old hammer. I was just like, I like the imagery. A bit stereotypical of the woman beating the shit out of somebody with a frying pan. Like, can, can you get more traditional feminine than that? But I did find it really amusing just like a bunch of upset people being like, no, I'm not accepting this weird fantastical creature. I'm going to use my cast iron pan against you and then just doing it. I I just found it amusing amongst the like stress and terror and the what is happening. This isn't real. These aren't real. My father dynamics. I just thought that was very, very, very fun uh, amongst all the trauma going on. It kind of lightens the tension a little. Yes. Yeah. So uh, to get to that point, Rand like stumbles into Iman's field with Tam um refer to the painting where shit's on fire yo yeah um it's literally still on fire some parts uh and like people are in their pajamas and all rand wants to do is like i gotta find the knave i gotta get tam to the knave they finally do so because like they snag egwainer i think that's what happens and so they get Nanave there. Nanave like took takes one look at the poisoned cut, and is like, "I can't do anything for this. Just, I guess, like, hopefully he dies peacefully." Which is pretty savage. I mean, it makes sense though for like triaging the situation. Yeah, even if you are like tapped into the wisdom and you know have the the magical power of she doesn't. Oh, she doesn't. No, she's just. She's just uh, She's just the lady in charge of the women's circle. Oh, okay. She's just the female mayor. Female mayor. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like, she talks about, like, listening to the wind, but, like, she would say that, like, okay. yeah, I just, I just sort of know what the weather's gonna be. Yeah, she but... just, like, has a good sense for the weather and for healing herbs. So she's just intuitive and, like, the local healer. But, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, like, triaging. Like, yeah. you're not gonna be prepared in some sheep's forsaken place to know how to heal a poisoned blade from something that people really didn't think exist. Yeah. yeah. And so it's it seems like, obviously, oh, no, how cruel, how dare she not heal my father? But it was also, like, but realistically, well, duh, healing is hard. Yeah, very much like, I can go save these people. I'm not going to sit here and not save your father. I don't think the reader is expected to side against Nanave here. It's just like, Rand's perspective is skewed. I almost think that that's like, part of it. Because until you know that it is Rand's perspective by stepping out of it in later books, do you even know that that's not reality? So like, I almost wonder if you are expected to... Maybe not side against her like, oh, she's so horrible, but certainly to think like, well, but wait, you're just going to leave him? Like, we came all the way here. Yeah, I think if I didn't know about medicine, I'd be like, why Why is this in the story? But since I do know a little bit about medicine, it's like, well, you can't fix everybody and prioritize your time. 
Notably, they do not know about medicine. Rand is like, why are your hands so clean? Yeah. Yeah, Rand is uh, like, why are you covered in ash but your hands aren't? Let me just shove some ashy dirt hands into the crevices of other people. That'll go real well. I'm sure the miasma won't get in that way. Rand doesn't know anything. He's just a simple shepherd from the two rivers. Yeah, so Rand is like, okay, well, Nanave's not going to help, so I'm going to take Tam to the mayor. Takes him to the inn. Tom is there. Tom helps carry Tam in. Egwene's father, whose name I don't remember. Bran, maybe? Bron? Yeah. Uh, Bran, Tam, Rand. Easy to tell the difference. Yeah. Uh, Bran, the broken, (laughs) helps to bring Tam in. And, yeah, he mentions Moraine, like, called down ball lightning and sensed the Trollocs coming. And Lan was, like, in ten places at once, killing ten Trollocs at once. That man himself is a weapon. I I thought that quote was good. Yeah. They discuss that, like, well, if she's Aes Sedai, then she should be able to heal Tam. But, like, do you really want to get involved with an Aes Sedai? Like, is it worth Tam being alive to get involved with an Aes Sedai. So Tom, I think here, like, definitely implies, I think the implication is that it goes beyond, like, I know stories about Aes Sedai, and it goes to, like, I have a history with Aes Sedai, and I don't know, maybe the, maybe I'm misreading it, but it comes off as almost like I have a history specifically with Moraine. Builds up that drama factor. Rand eventually decides, like, you know, I gotta try. So he runs off, finds Moraine. Um, Moraine mentions Rand's dreams, um, which will become relevant. Um, Yeah, she's like, tell me if you have any weird dreams, like, for real. Yeah. Is this this one of his, like, magical protagonist powers dynamics, or is this- You'll learn. This part of the, like, what is real, make sure you're not going mad. dreams are really important yeah in general (laughs) just in regards to the piles of adjectives and descriptive paragraphs i really like how the sense of smell was used in this chapter Mm -hmm. because a lot of the earlier chapters are all about the, the the visuals and the things you might hear but this included the 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 sweet sick smell of death and i think if you have just you know been attacked by large troll orc things and uh you were not prepared for it at all just that the, the, the descriptions of the smell of the smoke and the death i don't know I'd, i i appreciated that in the piles of word at words i was given to visualize this mm-hmm. yeah moraine is definitely like i think she's like i forget what she's sitting on i was gonna say a trollic corpse but that doesn't sound like her lan is definitely like uh, searching the bodies for identifying information. But Rain is, like, super happy that Rand is alive. She's like, aw, sick. Glad you're not dead. So she... She tells Rand, like, you know, I can maybe heal him. It's gonna be tough. And Lan's like, you know, it took a lot out of her using that much of the power. Um, they discuss the... I'm gonna say the word... Mydral? I thought it was like Murdral. Uh, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. I, th- I Yeah, I also thought it was Murdral, like Muradin, Merlin, how that sort of spelling used to be. It may yeah. very well I, be. I assumed it was playing on the 
more. Oh, you know what? There is an R there. Yeah, it's yeah. Murderall. Yeah. And Rand is like, it couldn't have been a Murderall. Murderalls are 20 feet tall. And like, made of fire and hate. And so, she agrees to go and heal him, and Rand says, Rand makes a pledge like, I will pay any price within my power if you go and heal my father. Which is such a dangerous promise to make. Like, there's so many things you can do with that. Well, I guess we just have to hope that Moraine has his best interests at heart. Smiles at camera. (laughs) Smiles at camera. Um, God, I hope so. Don't don't they literally just describe, like, Ace and I as, like, puppeteers? Yeah. Of, uh, yeah, so. Hmm. You just promised Mm. yourself to a Sasori. Congratulations. Yeah, good job. So that's kind of the end of the chapter, is they're, like, rushing off to the inn to get Tam healing. So chapter eight, A Place of Safety. Um, Moraine and Rand have made it back to the inn, and Moraine tells everybody except Lan and Rand to get out. Um, and she starts healing Tam, and she's like... I don't care what you two do, just sit over in the corner and be quiet. Rand and Lan talk a lot, and I'm mostly going to let you two have this discussion, um, because I don't think I can have it without accidentally spoiling, but there's, like, a long conversation that the two of them have. I mean, one thing is that Lan sort of briefly explains that Moraine is using the one power on Tam, and he describes the one... Pa- I don't know if this is Lan saying this, but in the section it says, The one power drawn from the true source that drove the wheel of time. And this one line, like, really stuck out to me. It's the only time, to my knowledge, and like, everything that I've read, where they explain where this magical power comes from, that's like, entropy powers. And knowing that, I've had a really hard time connecting entropy powers to anything that anyone does with this magic. I think it's like unformed primordial energy, not necessarily like... Because the wheel isn't like entropy, the wheel is just like the process of reality existing. Mm. It's like whatever force moves time forward. Yes. The thing that. Yeah, I would say it's that's a good description of it. Yeah. So. Lan starts dropping a lot of exposition about Trollocs. All you've ever wanted to know about the Trolloc people and their weapons and where they found them and where they're made. Just, just just a lot. Land does a lot of description. And for myself, at least, I was kind of not not bored, but I was like, okay, but are Trollocs going to be significant? Is But what about that sword, though, was kind of my brain, um, as well as, like, what makes them the chosen one. And I do like that you selected the, the quote for the one power true source, because um, rather than entropy, as you said, or whatever Tyler said to explain it better... Um, I was thinking it as potential, like mm-hmm. there's just like this source of potential and it's been tainted and we're using it wrong for some reason because history has not been remembered. At least that's the kind of vibe I'm getting regarding power and whatnot, because it also goes on to, is this the chapter where she talks about how she, how her people used to be super cool and powerful and now she's struggling to heal? Yeah, and she needs to use a angriel to 
enhance her power to heal Tam. Yeah, and just like Tam's unique strength of will, spirit, body, mind, etc. assists with the process. Which mm-hmm. also makes me wonder, are spirit, body, mind, are, are those different things in this world? Like your human spirit versus your physical body? Does that- yes. Okay. <laughs> because I, I know that magic is unfortunately tied to gender and stuff like that. So it's like, is gender your body or is it your spirit? And if so, do trans people even exist? And yeah. Your soul is gendered. That's disgusting. <laughs> Exist uh, in my nightmare. <laughs> I don't like that. <laughs> yeah, it's not great. In the beginning, people just were. And then the Dark One touched the world and was like, y'all exist now. Ugh. Get wrecked. I didn't ask for this. Um, yeah. So. But yeah, it is important that Lan is very fixated on Trollocs, we'll yeah. understand later. Yeah. So, the things that I listed down as the exposition dumps were the the Mirdral healing, the limits of the power, the weird crow from earlier, um, that they're like servants of the Dark One, and then the significance of the Heron on the blade. Mm-hmm. What makes herons better than ravens and crows is this just like going off traditional mysticism and how crows and ravens are bad yes well it's the okay. crows and ravens are carrion eaters they say and carrion eaters are like spies for the dark one yeah i i think i just don't like the darkest bad light is good dynamic i think i just am tired of it because i'm like ravens are really smart though you're gonna love this series. Yeah, I, 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 good thing it's not explicitly defined. <laughs> I, I think this is gonna be the con- continued journey with B. Beyond reads this series. Yeah, I mean, it's the conflict isn't nuanced. I'd say, but <laughs> it's why eight-year-old Tyler could really thoroughly enjoy this. <laughs> um, I think it's also heron because herons are like graceful. Yeah. And like Easternish. Yeah, you'll learn about the the grace of the sword forms. <laughs> I, I feel like herons are elegant in the same way that bald eagles are majestic from a specific angle, sure, and they're symbolic at that way, but if you look at them from any other angle, they're so awkward. <laughs> they're Maybe so... that's the whole point. But, <laughs> well no, like that's what Tam talks about, right? When he gives up the sword in just a minute, is like Tam says, I never had use of the sword. Like, what am I supposed to do? Plow a field with a sword? And so, like, you could definitely make the argument that, like, the heron is beautiful and graceful in what it does, but that sometimes it can also certainly not be. Like, if you're a pile of legs with feathers. Yeah, (laughs) but it, it also is like, you know, it just stands in the water and then it strikes once and gets its head. But essentially, Lan talks about how surprising it is to see a sword like that here. Yeah. And he's like, does your father happen to be an Eastern Swordmaster? Yeah. Is your father (laughs) one of the best swordsmen in the world? Um, My father? My father (laughs) is Tam Alfort. (laughs) (laughs) A simple sheep herder. I'm a simple sheep herder from the two rivers. My father is Tam McThor. (laughs) Uh, so the conversation like Moraine very I didn't pull a quote out but I oh you did Uh, the quote from Moraine is 
you will no doubt leave at the same time we do, and we can speak at length then. Like, she doesn't ask? She j and she doesn't say you're leaving? She's just like, when you leave, this is going to happen, and you're leaving soon. And Rand, like, didn't even consider leaving. Like, yeah, he, like, <laughs> takes a second to be like, wait, what did she just say? So, like, this is the point where I was thinking about trope awareness, because, like, we as the readers are expecting this main character to go on a journey of some kind. And I feel like a lot of fantasy authors forget to make their characters not aware of this trope. But Robert Jordan successfully convinces me that Rand was not expecting to go on a journey. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's, like, good reasons for him to leave. Yeah. He was gonna marry the girl with the name who sounds like Egg. And they were going to look after sheep for the rest of their boring hobbit lives. Even after the attack from the Trollocs, Rand isn't like, oh, I have to leave now. No, he's like, I gotta fix my dad, my father, and then uh, rebuild the village and yeah. just make it happen. And I think that's like way more believable than I think a lesser author could easily have made that moment. Mm-hmm. It keeps in trend with how the village works, like the, the, the village perseveres through everything that's thrown out it, and people who don't persevere, they're no longer there anymore. So like, you just stick to it and you do it. Yeah, but I guess that means that Rand can't hack it, so he's gotta leave. Bye. <laughs> um, yeah, so the conversation, she has good reasons that Rand needs to leave, um... And that they need to go to, <clears throat> with her, to Tarvalin, the city of the Aes Sedai, which is not, it's not mentioned where it is, um, but it must be far away. I guess there's a map in the book, right? There is a map in the book, yes. And at this point, Rand just, like, passes out from exhaustion. He, like, the chapter ends mid-sentence, I think. And so Rand wakes up, he eats a little bit. Isn't he... there a dream sequence first? Yes, yes, you're right, you're right. Um, so there is a dream sequence. Uh, I'm so glad it was a dream sequence, because the moment I started reading it, I was like, oh, this is a dream. And then I was like, wait, is this a dream? And then I was like, yeah, it's a dream. So I was very proud of myself when I was like, this is dream. Wow, good job. Yeah. I felt more <laughs> pleased, okay? Um, I don't have anything about the dream sequence listed. Yeah, it's pretty much just Robert Jordan, like, flexing on us, being like, look at all this stuff I'm foreshadowing. And then the dream sequence itself doesn't actually have any impact on the characters. He just sort of forgets. Yeah, it's basically like, I can show you the world, but it's like fantasy and also terror. Yeah, pretty much. And then, like, Rand just sort of, like, decides it's not important and we'll never think about it. Oh, wait, there, there was one quote I liked, and re re regarding the um, tower... The, the the deja vu in that the the memory was there like he recognizes that he's never been there before and that he hasn't done this but something about it the the, the memory remains and so just that that feeling the intuition regarding it and then also towers i was reminding in how tarot like like tarot cards um the the tower is a pretty significant card and it means change as in sudden change so i was just wondering with all the symbolism that's been throwing on sudden change and i think that just kind of ties in pretty well with what's happening mm -hmm. 
surprisingly, I don't see a ton of tarot in this series. I was wondering because, like, where the magic, witchery, etc., what's the dynamics of it? What are the rules? Like, obviously, there's the disgusting gender is your soul and your magic. But um, beyond that, I'm looking forward or hopefully looking forward to seeing how the the magic works. There's so much description of how the magic works. Yay! <laughs> is it more than the cloaks? Um, Less than or equal to cloaks. Probably greater than cloaks by the end. Alright. It might be like neck and neck. I don't have a ton to say about this. the dream. No, Rand wakes up from his very upsetting dream. Um, he eats, uh, goes and wakes up Tam against the explicit instructions of pretty much everyone. He talks about leaving. Um, Tam imparts some wisdom. He cautions Rand to watch out for Moraine's words. And I have it listed here as all Aes Sedai are like walking monkey's paws. Yeah, that's not a quote. That's Tyler's. No, no, no. Sorry. <laughs> I have it written down, quoted from my thoughts. The uh, idea is, I said I will always tell the truth, but it's not necessarily the truth that you're thinking of. So we continue with the pact parallels. Yeah. Are Aesidae kind of like fairies or the way that Fae is often treated in fantasy, where they have... Um, desires that are different than humans but they find humans necessary for their various plots and so they will always tell the truth but how they present it is tricky i mean the they are are human yeah they are but they're like described as puppet masters in that way so like so like the thing that you said jesse is exactly correct it's um the truth that they tell you is not the truth that you think you're being told. So yes, they are... I mean, they're known as manipulators. So they're like a bunch of Dumbledores. Kinda, yeah. Kinda, but like if everybody knew, like, hey, don't listen to Dumbledore. (laughs) Okay. We're gonna meet a lot of Aes Sedai, and they all have different desires. Uniquely human desires. Can you, I? identify Aesidae by what they wear or do they introduce themselves as Aesidae or others identify them as Aesidae? Is uh, it like a career or job label or is it like an identity? They It's like different in every context. Uh, okay. But they have like one unifying feature. I just don't remember when they say it, but like anyone who has seen an Aesidae before would recognize another one because okay. like there's something that happens to their face. Okay. They say they look ageless. Yeah, it's the thing where Rand was like, I can't tell how old Moraine is. Mm -hmm. She looks as old as me, and then she looks as old as, like, a mother. Okay. Like, you you look at an Aes Sedai, and something about using the power means that you can't tell how old they are. Even, like, super old ones, you can only tell because of their hair color. Okay. Um, so when Tam wakes up, Rand decides, no reason to mention Tam's ramblings under the fever. Not yet. And I have in my notes, re- Yeah. Yeah, don't ask him about this. Just go through emotional turmoil for the next few books. That sounds like a Harry Potter solution. Like, Pretty much. Let's, yeah. let's not ask and then just brood. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Rand is the essence of brooding made manifest. Oof. Yeah. Brooder and a prankster and a good boy. Yes. Okay. It's like a classic trio right there. 
So Lan pops in and is like, hey, we got to go. And Rand is like, he turns to Tam and is like, I love you, dad. And Lan is like, why are you taking so long? <laughs> how dare you express feelings? Yeah. Do you know how tired I am? Yeah, it's like one sentence in between we have to go and why are you delaying? <laughs> so Lan pulls Rand downstairs and then I like am still kind of thinking about pulling the book out and reading this entire section, but I really don't think I should. It's like five pages long. Yeah, it's like five pages. Where they just get owned. Well, just like Moraine's whole speech about uh, Manatheron is like... Manatheron? Manatheron. Listen, it's the old tongue. You don't speak it. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, this is the culmination of a couple of my, like, threads of notes. A, about crowd writing. B, about Moraine, like, using the mind whammy on people. I'm not sure if it's supposed to be that her story is just so good that it, like, convinces everyone to back off, or if she, like, used magic on them. And I have trouble believing, I have trouble buying into something like her story was so good it made everyone back off, because there's this thing that happens in, like, Game of Thrones, where whenever a whole group of people spontaneously shows unified emotion, I don't buy it at all. I can't imagine, like, a group of people all reacting uniformly to a certain experience. That makes a lot of sense. And then I think what stuck out to me with the crowd was the class dynamics of how this village works, where even in this small village, um, the village council can be like, everybody leave the peddler alone, we're gonna deal with this, everyone leave the glee maker, bard, whatever, alone, we're gonna manage this everyone in the crowd how dare you be ashamed blah 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 and then they just back off and i think they they are called commoners in the the shaming of their how how dare you be an angry mob i don't know so i just thought it was interesting how the politics play into how the situation is diffused like obviously she does her cool mind powers charisma whatever and tells a really cool story but then there's also just like who who enforces the listen to this and this is how things are and accept yeah. it. Yeah. I think Tyler was deeply affected by the story based on how much he wants to read it. So I think Tyler I, could buy that it's just a really good story. It's a really good story. I think it's a really good story and I know the answer to the question that you're asking. Explain a little of like why it affects you. I just think like I think that this is the same thing as the passage about the wheel turning that starts off every book where like Jordan is just really good at this specific thing where he like lends gravitas to events and the idea of like having someone standing there tell you this story the way I picture it in my head I mean it's like evening or like late afternoon and she's like standing against this angry mob with like fire whirling in front of her as she tells this story about this like kingdom that fought to the last person to try and slow down the shadow and then the counterstroke that the queen makes like wipes the shadow spawn from the land her talk about like the blood of these people having something magical in it by the force of their sacrifice and like 
Weep for the memory that is lost. Weep for the blood that was. Weep because you are what's left. Is like... That is pretty savage. It's it's some tough stuff to hear for those people, I'm sure. Yeah, those Copland fools. Yeah, really. So yeah, I mean, I just think... I think it's really well written, and I'm not going to read it because I have gone back and forth on, like, do I actually want to read this? And I was thinking no, and then I was like, yeah, maybe I should. And then I looked back and saw it's, like, five pages long. Um, I can just say a sentence of one part that I liked especially of it. Sure. Weep for the loss of even their memory. I thought that was interesting considering because um, in the prologue, that guy's memory is completely shot. His awareness is not there. Memory in regards to this little village, they clearly didn't recall this story of hers, if it is true. And so just weep for the loss of even their memories. I thought it was good reflection on how even if time does continue and there is beginnings ends all within themselves, things get lost. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was very good. I just found that extra interesting about the story. Other parts of it, I was like, okay, yes. Mm-hmm. But this part, I was like, oh, yes. Weep for them, the feelings, the emotions, these stories that are no longer here because the flawed natures of humanity and whatnot. Yeah. Um. So the story ends with that. Or I'm sorry, the chapter ends with that story being told. Um. And villagers scattering. Yeah. Being sort of ashamed. Yeah, like, story ends, villagers leave, and they all, like, start heading off to the stables to get their horses. So, chapter 10, leave-taking. Lan cracks open a cold stable with the boys, and they are, like, trying to figure out who's going to take what horse, how much stuff do they need. You know, did you tell anybody? Well, yeah, I told my father, Tam Althor. And everybody else is like, you weren't supposed to tell anyone. We didn't tell anyone. Why are you like this? <laughs> My father. <laughs> Lan looks at Perrin like Perrin was the one that was supposed to check and make sure nobody was here. Because Perrin is, has no ability to see in the dark or hear better than an average person. Um, he does not notice that they are being snuck up on. Egwene shows up and is like, Hey, I'm coming too. Like, this is my... I'm not throwing away my shot. This might be the worst part of this entire section. (laughs) You think? I was so mad at the way Egwene was written in these, like, next few paragraphs. Egwene is Rand without Rand's point of view. It just felt very hetero. Like, very, like, oof. At least that that's what I was kind of getting from it, that 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 they're young, that they have weird feelings, but then also that she doesn't want to be trapped in this place forever. But um, um, it, 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 it read young, at least in my interpretations. I was like, ooh, y'all need to have better communication. It wasn't like their relationship or Egwene's like femininity that was bugging me. It was stuff like saying, like, essentially, she thinks that they're just like leaving for shits and giggles. She thinks that they're just, like, looking for adventure, and, like, I'm not missing out on that. It's like, oh my god. And then she still doesn't believe Rand, Matt, and Perrin when they talk about, like, the rider or why they need to leave. She says, Rand, if you've decided to see some of the world, well and good, but please spare me any of your nonsensical tales. Uh, 
it actually was like insanely frustrating for me to read hmm i don't think i got that frustrated i was more just like all right get going it's <laughs> yeah, true. It, this That's is the 10th chapter please move please move yeah or like 20 percent of the way through the book yeah um i i think i i did notice a gender thing in here where um it's on page i think 144 where it's everything can be a weapon but then they do the thing where everyone can do his or her bet his or her best to the best of his or her ability kind of that sort of dynamic of why are there so many words here when you could have just used their or they or people like you're talking about weapons why are you doing he she his blah blah it added like three more lines to something that could have been one line but it seems like his writing likes to add three lines when there could be one line so it might just be my nitpicking but i really hate it when they do like he she his her rather than just doing they and then i also liked how um patterns were suddenly a big deal and they were like it's meant to be by the pattern and like lan was just unhappy the entire time and then moraine's just like nah the pattern it's okay land stop it's the pattern so i don't know i found that also amusing con- considering the rest of the dynamic where it's definitely more stressed it's the no but the pattern though it's okay and then just go thank you for bringing up the pattern we probably would have skipped that actually yeah um so what do you i mean i don't know i feel like something is weaving in a way that it, it wills. wills yeah <laughs> oh wow it's weaving and the wheel and it's will okay the wheel weaves as the wheel wills. That's a tongue twister right there. Yeah, well, Moraine says it a lot, and she never stumbles over her words, so... Well, I'm not a magical, ageless lady. That's true. You know? Like, I'm I'm not, and I'm never going to be. You're actually none of those three things. Yeah. <laughs> Plus, like, I, I really want to know about the, the name choices of these characters, if they're significant or not, because Mora or Moira, depending on how you pronounce it, are um, the fates in in Greek mythology, and so is that going to play a role in how 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 she is interacting with the three characters in the book? Stuff that's like very that. fitting. <laughs> okay, so I don't know. I I I like this with characters where it's like, okay, we know that you're super powerful, witchy, cool person, ageless that also just casually brought down lightning, but your people used to be way more powerful. And tell me more. Also, I feel like this chapter ends ominously, like the previous chapters have been, where it's like, it's going to be all right. But the the way that it's leading, it's just like, oh, this is, this is going to be a trip. This is a trip. So yeah, let's, let's finish up the chapter and then we can talk. So, uh, Tom, Marilyn eventually also joins them. He's like- Drops down from the rafters. Yeah, he's like, I'm out skis. And Lan is like, Perrin, why are you like this? And you are not the good boy anymore. Yeah. You failed me, Perrin, for the last time. So they all get on their horses. They're leaving. There's something called a Dragakar. Yeah. In the it's sky. It's like a big bat, I, but a human. Yeah. It's like a person, but also a bat. Yeah, they are big. I mean, it's like a big vampire person bat. So yeah, it's a vampire. Nothing says fantasy like vampires. So, yeah, they head out at, of town with this thing pursuing them in the sky, and that's like the actual end of this chapter, and now the characters are like, gone from the village. Yeah. We are officially in journey mode. Yeah. And we're gonna be there for a long time. Yeah, some might say 
the rest of the series. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so we mentioned the pattern. Beyond, what do you know about, like, the phrase, the pattern? Does that mean anything to you? I mean, it seems like probably something similar to how people keep emphasizing light and the wheel and how time passes and ages. It seems like something that's going to play a lot into how the world is constructed slash has been constructed. I also think it might be something that Moraine just likes to throw at land to get land to shut up. (laughs) Um, Because I feel like if I definitely had some cool mystical power and I had the ability to get someone to stop worrying anxiously at me, I would definitely be like, nah, it's, it's predetermined. It's okay. Um, So it seems like it's something vaguely mystical, mysterious, but also something that definitely plays into the structure of how this world works. Like there are patterns, there are circles, paths, etc. that are taken because I don't know, dragon, ages, madness, <laughs> fill in the blank with an adjective. Yeah. I mean the wheel turns, ages come back, there's a plot element called the dragon reborn. I don't think it's that far fetched to think like cycles yes cyclical patterns did you get it's it? a wheel it's a circle of life did you get it it's a circle did did you get it okay well do you i mean you're kind of the one that would only have thoughts on this portion do you have any like closing thoughts perhaps this is just my personality but it seems like it didn't need to be 10 chapters. Oh, God, no. <laughs> I I mean, artistic choice is fair, and I'm sure the person had lots of fun writing this in his own way. But as a reader, while I do appreciate detail, I don't need complete information overload. For myself, my eight-year-old self wouldn't have likely read this. Not that I wasn't reading adult books. I was reading classics like Treasure Island and other sorts of classical books that are actually casually racist and other problematic things. But, you know, classics, Dickens, whatever. And I, I it's just, ugh, I don't know. I, If I wasn't doing this for the podcast, I would not continue because it has not captured me and... While I like some of the prose, a lot of it I'm just tired. It does get significantly better. I'm I'm waiting. <laughs> yeah, I think what you're saying is like totally fair. Uh but I noticed something when reading that knowing things retroactively made this stuff better. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like the questions that you're asking like, my mind is blown that you don't know some of this stuff because you haven't read it. But when you're talking about, like, your thoughts on the pattern and the wheel and cycles and stuff, I'm like, what are you even talking? Like, there's so much information and you're so, like, close but so off. I'm like, I'm having to remember that there's a bunch of information that they haven't talked about because these characters all live in a village and so they don't know anything. So nothing has been communicated to you yet. They're rural sheep people. Yeah. Like, even on my reread, I at least remembered, like, how the concepts of all of this stuff worked. Well, how wonderful. I'm sure once I get to that point, it'll be useful and illuminating. I think the key thing for me, and what I kind of want to close on, 
is that partway through the first book, uh, I realized that talking about The Wheel of Time is more fun than reading it. So I think that's sort of the point. You were talking about how if you weren't doing this for the podcast, you wouldn't continue. Mm -hmm. But I think having the opportunity to talk about it is like the fun. I do think it is useful. And I think it's interesting to have this because sometimes Tyler gets really excited about something and he'll start talking to me. But my my interest is not coinciding whatsoever. But uh, this is a nice structured way to learn, listen, etc. I definitely think I've had more fun doing this than I had reading any part except like the climax of book two. Um, I'm sh- I'm sure later parts will be good too. I just haven't reread any of. This was certainly more fun than reading these ten chapters. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yes. like the first. Those are ninety minutes. I'm not getting back in my life. Oh my god! Just ninety minutes. <laughs> it was that a be long nice? ninety minutes. I like slowly chipped away at it for like a week. Yeah, I think those ten chapters might have taken me like two or three days of reading for just a bit at a time. You're slow. So that's the first 10 chapters down. 10 chapters plus the prologue. Um, I feel like I've aged uh, <laughs> more than the time that we spent recording. And I mean, I'm I'm looking forward to doing this more. I feel so intellectual. Yeah. yeah. I'm looking forward to it too. This was like a real discussion that we really had. Yeah. And I think... And I appreciate anyone listening this far. Yeah. Like, I don't remember any specific 10 chapter span of the slump. But, like, this, I can't imagine any given ten chapters in that chunk of the story being as, like, slow and monotonous as these. So, like, there's nowhere to go but up. Okay, well, um, this has been, I'm Tyler. And I'm Beyond. And I'm Jesse. And we are the third wheel. And we'll uh, be back next time. Thanks, everyone.